You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And last week, we introduced the topic of cancer. Um, and we've, we've acknowledged, Andrea, that really we could have at least a dozen episodes on this topic alone. Um, but at a high level, we presented some statistics on cancer rates, some risk factors, and we discussed broadly what is cancer. So today we're going to dig in a bit more into some of those details and discuss how we can detect and treat cancer, again, broadly speaking. Before we do that, we wanted to talk a little bit about what a typical day looks like. So Andrea, what does a typical day look like for you? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I honestly, there is no typical day for me. I could be working at the computer all day, doing data analysis, putting a presentation together, a lot of emails and, and kind of managerial stuff. I manage a team as well. So there's a lot of kind of administrative things I have to go on or I could be in the lab working with clients, doing experiments and running samples and additional data analysis. I could be at a research conference, either attending or presenting data. But, you know, every day is is different. Um, every day is typically very hectic. And it always involves having to juggle probably way too many things on my plate. <laughs> Well, yeah, a lot of what you're saying resonates. So I guess, well, every single day for me starts the same way, which is pure and total chaos with my children, <laughs> getting them up, getting them fed and dressed and off to school. And then just like you, my typical day will vary. But I used to be more um, on the side of doing the actual project work, but now in my role as CEO of my public health consultancy, Vital Statistics, a lot of what I'm doing is client relations, trying to get us new work, uh, looking for funding opportunities. So definitely lots of back-to-back -back meetings, <laughs> uh, putting together materials and presentations, as you said, so many phone calls, so many emails sent. And then Andrea, one thing that, I think we should acknowledge is that you and I, we have an open line of communication pretty much constantly. We're messaging each other and brainstorming podcast topics and social media posts. So I'd say that I don't even know how many messages we send to each other a day, <laughs> hundreds, if not thousands. Hundreds, yeah. But in a nutshell, I think it's safe to say our brains are never turned off. And, you know, I'm not, this is not really something to brag about, but it, right. it's just accurate that we literally are working from the second we wake up until the second we go to bed. And you and I have talked about how we... We, we need to be kinder to ourselves and our bodies and our brains, um, but we're, we're still working on that. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think, Jess, it's an important point to make because, you know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And, you know, I mean, I take medication and, you know, go to therapy for my own mental illness. And, you know, even even with that in mind, I think, you know, we still often need to practice better self-care for each other. Totally agree. And I know mental health is something that we both uh, feel strongly should be discussed and discussed openly. Um, so we will definitely be tackling that topic in the future. So, all right, let's dig into this a little bit. How does cancer occur? So I think we talked about this last week, but worth reiterating that there's no one single cause for cancer. And Andrea, I think you did a really good job of driving home that no two cancers are identical, right? Basically, um, we, we owe that to our genetic diversity, right? Um, so it's really more of an interaction of many factors together that produces cancer. And we discussed some of those factors, but they could be genetic, environmental exposures, or constitutional characteristics of the individual. Could also be you know, behavioral, engaging in certain activities like smoking. Um, really, there are many, many things that could increase your risk uh, for cancer. So diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis for childhood cancers. We didn't really talk too much about childhood cancer, so I just wanted to introduce that. They're different than for adult cancers. And the main differences are the survival rate and the cause of cancer. So when you look at the um, overall five-year survival rate for childhood cancer, it's about 80%. For adults, in, uh, in adult cancers, the survival rate is um, just under 70%, right around 68%. Yeah, and just I think yeah. it's important to make that this is an average across all oh, yeah. cancer types. We're simply looking at cancers that originate during childhood versus cancers that originate during adulthood. We know that there mm -hmm. are some cancers that have almost 100% five-year survival, and we, we know that there are unfortunately some cancers that have extremely low um, five-year survival. Such an important point to make. Yes, this is a generalization, and I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more on this episode about you know the diversity of, of, of cancer and what that term means. Uh, so yes, thank you for making that point. So childhood cancer tends, tends to be more responsive to therapy and a child can tolerate more aggressive therapy. Uh, childhood cancers often occur or begin in stem cells, which are simple cells capable of producing other types of specialized cells that the body needs. And a sporadic or random cell change or mutation is usually what causes um, cancer in children. Whereas in adults, the type of cell that becomes cancerous is typically an epithelial cell. These are cells that line the body cavity and cover the body surface. Cancer occurs from environmental exposures to these cells over time. And adult cancers are sometimes referred to as acquired for this reason. So Andrew, do you want to talk to us a little bit more about cancer at the cellular level, some of the processes involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you guys recall from last week, we talked a little bit about, you know, the, the progression to cancer is not simply flipping a switch. It's typically the accumulation of multiple mutations. Um, so cancerous cells, so these are cells that are human cells, they're self-cells 
but they no longer behave normally. And what that means is they no longer respond to cellular signals that would say, hey, you're reproducing aberrantly or, you know, you have errors, you're supposed to, um, you know, die through a programmed cell death pathway. So, you know, when mutations occur and mutations are completely random process due to, you know, spontaneous errors as our cells reproduce, if something bad happens during reproduction, our cells are, they have these signals, they have these checkpoints, they have these kind of benchmarks that they need to hit. And if something is wrong, the cells will initiate a, essentially a suicide path where they will initiate a programmed cell death. And what that does is it basically heads off cancer at the start. So if a cell develops a series of mutations and it's no longer behaving appropriately, normally they die. And and this could be elicited by the cell itself, but it also could be elicited by our immune system. And so there's a variety of processes in our bodies and checkpoints and pathways that allow our body systems to surveil everything and make sure it's going as it should. But sometimes these cumulative mutations occur and our immune system or the cancer cell itself um, does not die. And so when that happens, now you have the start of cancer as we know it. And so these are accumulations typically over time of a variety of mutations and that kind of normal cellular process is no longer being adhered to by these cancerous cells and so you have a lot of things occurring so cells have to behave in a very logical fashion and they have things called um you know adhesion dependent growth inhibition and things like that and so What that means is that cells grow essentially in organized structures, but cancer cells ignore all of those signals and they start to grow in disorderly structures and in disorderly fashions. And this is a vicious cycle because as more cancer cells accumulate, those processes that are normally regulated break down further. And ultimately that leads to the development of tumors, which are growths of cancerous cells. And now, you know, there are two basic classes of of tumors or of cancers. We have solid tumors. So these are ones that we often think of um, most characteristically. So these are actual solid masses of tissue. But then you also have your blood cancers. So these are not solid tumors. They are circulating in our blood system. Um, So these are called hematologic tumors. And these are going to be things like your leukemias, your lymphomas, and your multiple myelomas. So Andrew, you're talking about basically these are genetic mutations or gene mutations. Is that right? Exactly. So then what actually causes gene mutations? So we, there's a whole bunch of different things that cause gene mutations. Now, the two classes of mutational processes, so mutations are completely random, right? These are spontaneous errors that occur as our cells are reproducing. And it's the same sort of thing that we've seen in the current COVID-19 pandemic where the viruses are accumulating mutations. Our cells accumulate mutations too. And ultimately, In our cells, we have proofreading mechanisms and error-correcting mechanisms, so we normally can 
account for and correct these mutations, these errors that occur, but some slip through the cracks, right? Nothing is 100%. And so we have two broad classes of mutations. We have inherited mutations. So these are going to be mutations that you're born with. So these are things that that you inherited from your parents. These are typically linked to a small proportion of cancers, but two that you might be um, familiar with or you might have heard about are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. So these are two genes that mutations in them have often been implicated in breast cancer and other reproductive cancers. And these are mutations that you can inherit from your family members. There are other mutations and the vast majority of mutations occur after you've been born. So again, mutations occur as a part of random error. So this is cumulative. So the older you get, the more time your body has to accumulate mutations. And while some are completely random just through random error, there are actual contributing factors that can exacerbate the rate of mutations or the number or types of mutations. Jess, do you want to touch on a couple of these risk factors? So yes, yeah, so there are, there are a number of things that can contribute to gene mutations. We talked about some of these last week. Um, some of them are behavioral, um, so things like smoking, of course, we know. Um, there's we, we know that smoking causes certain genetic mutations. There's radiation radiation exposure, certain viruses. Andrew, I think last week you gave the example of HPV, human papillomavirus. There are also uh, cancer-causing chemicals or carcinogens, obesity, certain hormones, um, chronic inflammation, and even a lack of exercise. Um, Andrew, I don't know, did you want to expand at all about uh, viral infections that could lead to cancer? Are there other examples other than HPV that come yeah, to mind? Yeah, I mean, there there are a variety of, of viral infections, and these are typically going to be seen with viruses that can basically establish what we call dormancy. And so after you've become infected with the virus, it actually can persist in your body from from there on out. And typically it's going to be essentially silent, but it can trigger the reactivation of the virus itself, which then can lead to uncontrolled cell growth and mutations in the cell because of the viral infection, which can ultimately lead to cancer. And so um, you know, the human papillomaviruses are a very broad class of viruses, and there's many of them that can actually cause cancer. So we have a vaccine for the main cervical cancer causing human papillomaviruses, which is incredible. We have other viruses that can also lead to cancer. So some examples of that would be the Epstein-Barr virus. So the herpes virus family can often lead to cancers as well. And this is not the, the herpes simplex one and two are in this family. Those cause your oral and genital herpes, but there are other viruses in that same family. Um, so Epstein-Barr Barr virus is in that same family. Um, this, this infection can increase your risk of four types of cancer. The three types are lymphomas. So there's Burkitt lymphoma, there's Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it also can increase your risk of stomach cancer. Some other examples are the hepatitis B virus, and we also have a vaccine that prevents against that. Um, this is a bloodborne and bodily fluid transmitted virus, and this is a leading cause of liver cancer. Another, 
Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go on. Go on. Another cancer, another virus that has been linked to cancer is the hepatitis C virus. Now, hepatitis B virus and hepatitis C virus are not related to each other. They're not in the same family of viruses. They're both called hepatitis viruses because they lead to issues with the liver. So that's what that means. Um, but hepatitis C is a leading cause of liver cancer and can also cause non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there is no vaccine for hepatitis C virus currently. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hmm. Um, and then we also have the human papillomaviruses. There's at least 12 strains that can cause a variety of cancers in men and women, which include cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, throat cancer, anal cancer and penile cancer. And so there is a vaccine for HPV that cover multiple strains of the viruses that are most likely to lead to cancer. So um, it's very recommended that people get this vaccine, particularly during childhood before you become sexually active and ultimately could progress to cancer. And then one other I want to mention is HIV, so human immunodeficiency virus. And this is transmitted through bodily fluids, so semen, vaginal fluids, blood, and breast milk. Now, the virus itself does not cause cancer, but because of the way the virus works, it actually basically kills our immune system. That's why it's called immunodeficiency. And so once our immune system is killed off, we no longer have defenses against a lot of these things that can lead to cancer. And so there's a variety of cancers that are associated with HIV or AIDS, which include Kaposi sarcoma, which we talked about last week a little bit, um, cervical cancer, lung cancer, throat cancer, as well as non-Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphomas. Um, and as, as of course we know, there is no vaccine against HIV. We had a whole episode about why it's so challenging, although we do have effective treatments to reduce the viral burden. So I have a question for you more on uh, these these genes um, that are drivers of cancer. So I, I, th I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the different classes of genes that are drivers of cancer, but I, I'm just, I, I mentioned last week that I had a scare, I guess at this point it's five, six years ago, where I had a lump. Um, and then based on my uh, family history, the fact that I do have a strong history of cancer in my family, the fact that I'm Ashkenazi and, and some other things, my my doctors were very concerned and they sent me for genetic testing. And so one of the things that they tested for were, were the BRCA genes. I don't know if you say BRCA or BRCA. I know everyone mm -hmm. says it differently. Um, but can you talk to us about those genes? Are you born with these genes? What are the different classes? I'm so curious to learn more. Yeah, so I mean, we have thousands of genes in our body, and all these genes are contained in our DNA. And when they need to be expressed or expressed in specific cells, 
that DNA is converted into RNA and the RNA is ultimately converted into a protein through a series of processes in our cells. Um, but there are different classes of genes, right? There are genes that are involved in like pigmentation that, you know, lead to things like our hair color or skin color. But the big classes of genes that are most commonly linked to cancer are genes that are involved in processes like that we call the cell cycle. And so the cell cycle is this orderly process that tell our cells how frequently to reproduce, um, when to not reproduce, you know, how many times to reproduce, um, all of these sorts of things. And this also includes our repair genes. So when a mutation occurs and there's an error, we have signals and we have checkpoints that tell our cells, oh, you need to fix that error. And if you can't fix that error, then, then you have to die because that's not a good thing. Um, and so the three classes of genes that are most commonly associated with cancer are what we call the oncogenes. So onco is, it means cancer, um, tumor suppressor genes, and DNA repair genes. So normally these genes, when they're healthy and non-mutated, they're doing things involved in this orderly regulation of all of the processes in our body, in different cells and things like that. But when they become mutated, their mutations lead to aberrant growth, aberrant reproduction, and you know proliferation of cells when they should not be proliferating. And so oncogenes, um, they start out as proto-oncogenes, so precursors, and when they accumulate these mutations, they are now classified as an oncogene, which again is something that can be linked to the progression to cancer. So a few examples of the, those are the RAS gene, um, HER2, which is very commonly involved with breast cancers and other reproductive cancers, and then EGFR. And so those are three that you might have heard of. There are many others, but those are some key examples. The next class are tumor suppressor genes. So these are normally involved in suppressing the progression of tumor growth. So they're kind of helping to surveil the state of the body, the state of the cells, and they help regulate things. But when, again, they accumulate mutations, they no longer serve that purpose, and then cells can grow out of control and lead to cancer. So two examples of those would be P53 and another one called RB. And then the last broad class would be our DNA repair genes. So again, these are genes that are involved in surveilling our DNA as our cells are reproducing or replicating. And if there's an error, they go in and they correct it. They cut out the error piece and they replace it with the corrected piece. So again, as you can imagine, if those genes become mutated and they're no longer serving their purpose, those errors are going to accumulate more quickly and that's going to lead to more mutations and that's of course going to accelerate the progression of cancer. And so two of those, as, as Jess just mentioned, are the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes. And of course, there are many more in all of these classes, but these are kind of the broad overview. This might be a stupid question, but I'm just wondering, I mean, is it likely that there are other genes that we haven't identified or could, I don't know if that's a ridiculous question. Absolutely. I mean, we, we know kind of the broad 
mechanisms and we know the broad pathways, but we're always identifying new things that are implicated in cancer. Um, you know, recently we learned that, that a cell type in the immune system that we thought was maybe less important is actually extremely important in helping to control the progression of cancer. Um, and as I mentioned, those examples I just gave are not remotely the full scope of all the genes that could be involved in cancer. But these are common ones that we see recurring in many cancers. And so we know that when they become mutated, they can accelerate the progression of cancer um, very rapidly. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, you did a, a really nice job la- last week of, of talking about this, the progression to cancer, right? And how it, it doesn't always occur at once. Um, there are these small changes in cells that sometimes are viewed as precursors to cancer. And then our clinicians will monitor them over time for future progression. I know you and I have, have both given some personal examples. I, did you want to elaborate on anything now or, or what yeah, do you I think? think? We can, yeah, I mean, I think we can talk talk a little bit about um, kind of the, you know, last week we kind of ended with how cancers are staged and how they're, they're classified as stage zero, one, two, three, four. Um, And that's, that's linked to how much they can spread or invade, right? How Mm -hmm. invasive or metastatic these cancers are. So I don't know, Jess, do you want to kind of start us off there? So, okay. So cancerous tumors are malignant. And that means that they can spread into or invade nearby tissues. And so as these tumor tumors grow, some cancer cells can actually break off and then travel to other places in our body, right? Through the blood or the lymph system. And then they can form new tumors that are far from the original tumor. And, and when this happens, we refer to that as metastasis. And so that's that's never a good thing, right? That that means that the that the cancer is spreading in our bodies. Right. So, and mm-hmm. Jess, if you recall from last week, we talked a little bit about that when we were talking about how cancers are staged, where, you know, stage zero or stage one cancers are considered to be localized. They haven't undergone metastases, they haven't spread to the bodies, they haven't invaded the lymph nodes yet. But once a cancer gets into the lymph nodes and gets into the lymphatic system, then it's much easier for that cancer to spread from the original site to other body sites. And that Mm -hmm. becomes obviously much more difficult to treat um, and to cure. And we're going to talk about treatment in just a little bit. So unlike malignant tumors, benign tumors, they, they don't spread, right? They, they don't invade these nearby tissues. They, they can sometimes be quite large. So when removed, they usually don't grow back, um, unlike malignant tumors, which do typically, um, or do at least sometimes grow back. So unlike most benign tumors elsewhere in the body, benign brain tumors in particular can be life-threatening. And Andrew, you might know more about this than I do, but I think a lot of it has to do with where the tumors are and, and certain um, parts of the brain that they might be pressing on. And is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, of course, the brain is a highly regulated structure. So if, you know, 
So, you know, I think it's important distinction to make is that, you know, we we can develop tumors that are not cancerous. I think that is kind of the point here. Um, and so there are a variety of benign tumors that can form. And these are just, you know, abnormal cell growth that's not actually due to a mutation. It's not actually due to cancer. And normally in the body, you know, that's not going to necessarily be quite dangerous. And those can be removed and things like that. But in the brain, right. because of the architecture of the brain, even a tumor in the brain that's benign could be dangerous, could be life-threatening. Right, right. And can impact speech and ability to walk and I mean, so many different things. So cancer cells differ from normal cells in many ways, right? Specifically uh, how they're able to grow out of control and become invasive. So one important distinction is that cancer cells are less specialized than normal cells. So normal cells mature into very distinct cell types with specific functions. Cancer cells, at least in my interpretation of them, they're more erratic, right? There's much less um, order in the way that they're reproducing. I don't know. That, oh, no. Is that not the right word, Andrea? Is reproducing is probably not the No, not, no. It, re- yeah. Reproducing is fine. So, so okay. basically what happens with cancer, so in our bodies, we know we have all these specialized cells, right? We have skin cells, which we call epithelial cells. We have muscle cells. We have, you know, all of the different cells in our bodies. When cancer occurs, and this, this occurs through a process of development, right? We, we start from stem cells, which have the ability to become any cell in the body, and they differentiate into distinct cells that have structure, function, organization, and they form our bones and our skin and our muscles and our, you know, specific cells in our body and, you know, all those sorts of things. But when cancer occurs, those specialized cells actually undergo a process called de-differentiation. So they become less like the cells that they were supposed to be and actually move backwards almost to now like a stem cell where they can reproduce almost indefinitely. So I'm picturing like a temperamental teenager. They're, you know, they're disorderly. The other thing is that cancer cells ignore signals that normally tell cells to stop dividing, right? Um, Or to begin what you were describing earlier, apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, which is how our bodies get rid of unneeded cells. Exactly. And so basically what these cancer cells do, although they're technically still our cells, they're ignoring all of these regulatory signals, these checkpoints and things like that. And in, an, in addition, they start to hijack our body. And so cancer cells and tumors in particular start to create an environment called the tumor microenvironment. And the tumor microenvironment has a whole lot going on. Cancer cells actually are able to grow vasculature, which are blood vessels. So that that enables them to basically steal nutrients from the rest of our body. um, And they can, you know, expand the amount of oxygen and nutrient supply so you can accelerate the growth of the tumor. Um, And then they another thing that they do is they're able to hijack and and evade the immune system. So the immune system is normally what's involved in preventing cancer from taking root in the first place. But Cancers have some very tricky things up their sleeve that enable them to evade the immune system, which normally would recognize and kill any cancer cells and would ultimately eliminate that progression. So they're able to hide out from the immune system. And I'm going to talk about one specific example. But something that's important to understand is that cells 
That includes cancer cells, that includes immune cells, that includes all the cells in our body. They express proteins on the surface of their cells. And so these are called receptors and some of them are also called ligands. So receptors interact with a ligand like a lock and a key. The ligand is the key to open the receptor, which is the lock. And that allows cells to interact with each other and to communicate with each other. And this actually typically allows immune cells to recognize abnormalities in cancer cells and induce that that death, right? Because we don't want cancer cells to normally grow and proliferate. But many cancers have evolved or developed proteins that allow them to camouflage themselves or even send a message to the immune cells to say, hey, don't kill me. So one example is a molecule called MHC class 1. And this stands for major histocompatibility complex 1. These are proteins that are found on the surface of all of our cells. Every nucleated cell in our body and platelets, which technically don't have nuclei. The only cells are not found on are red blood cells. Red blood cells don't have nuclei. But these proteins are essential for the function of our adaptive immune system. And our adaptive immune system, if you recall from our earlier episodes, are the branch of the immune system that is specific. So this is our B cells and our antibodies and our T cells. So these MHC class 1 molecules, what they do is they are expressed on the surface of all of our cells, but they sample proteins from within the cell that they're expressed on. And what they do is they take little bits and pieces of these proteins and they display them on the outside to immune cells that are circulating in our body. And these immune cells that are specific for this are are CD8 T cells or what we call cytotoxic T cells. So these are surveilling T cells that patrol our bodies. And so these little displays of these pieces of proteins from within the cells, it serves as this cell health status check. So a normal healthy cell will display normal healthy proteins. And our CD8 T cells will check it out and they'll be like, okay, that looks normal um, and it will keep on going. But if a cell is not healthy, and this could be due to a viral infection or a bacterial infection or if it's cancerous, it might display an irregular or a foreign protein. And so when that MHC class 1 takes that irregular cancerous protein and displays it, that CD8 T cell would say, hey, that's not normal. It would activate the CD8 T cell, and then that T cell would then kill that cell. So that's how it should work. But cancers or certain cancers have figured out a way to avoid this. And what they actually do is they reduce the expression of that MHC class 1 molecule and ultimately the presentation of any abnormal cancerous proteins. So when the T cells stop by, they don't see anything. There's no MHC class 1. There's no proteins being expressed. And so they're like, okay, I didn't notice anything. And they keep on going. And this is just one example of many. There are many different proteins and receptors that cancer cells manipulate in order to avoid immune recognition, which enables them to continue to grow. Some key examples, because we're going to talk about these quickly when we move into the treatment section, but one is called programmed death one and programmed death ligand one. You've probably heard it as PD-1, PDL one 
Another one is called CTLA-4, which is cytotoxic T lymphocyte associated protein 4. And another one that I'll mention is CD47, which is cluster of differentiation 47. But these pathways are actually now being used in novel cancer treatments because we know that cancers manipulate them in order to survive. Well, this is a really grim picture that you've painted here. <laughs> I think the you know the goal is to really underscore how complex and how much regulation is really involved in making sure that our bodies stay healthy and it really can't just be distilled into, you know, some simple process, particularly with regard to cancer. So, I mean, on that note, do you think, I mean, can, should we move on to, mm -hmm. to treatment and how difficult yes. it is to treat <laughs> yes. um, or can be? So um, as we've discussed, um, some cancers can remain small and localized and, and some metastasize and spread, right? And, and Andrea, you've, you've really uh, driven home the point that cancer is actually hundreds of different diseases that are all genetically unique and distinct to a person who has cancer. Mm -hmm. So that complicates treatment, right? right. Yes. <laughs> so it, That's it's, an understatement. Right. Because it, it's not like an infection where we can take a targeted medication, for example, an anti antibiotic that only kills bacterial cells, but not human cells, right? Um, because cancerous cells are human cells. They're just behaving abnormally. Mm -hmm. So, so this makes treating cancer inherently more, more challenging. So as we've been doing, we're, we're going to present some generalized treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, very important to drive home that there are several different approaches to cancer. Um, it really totally depends on the type and stage of cancer, your own risk factors. Um, and, and, and many times we use different types of treatment options concurrently, right? Or in right. conjunction with each other. Exactly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Exactly. So let's start with surgery. So mm -hmm. traditionally, the, the main purpose of cancer surgery is to, quote unquote, cure your cancer by removing it, right? Removing it completely from your body in, in, an, in an ideal situation. So by doing this, the surgeon you know, cuts into your body and removes the cancer along with some surrounding healthy tissue to ensure that all of the cancer is removed. Sometimes they, while they're in there, they also remove some lymph nodes in the area to determine whether the cancer has spread. And this helps the, the clinician assess the chance of being cured or whether you'll need some um, additional treatments. So mm -hmm. there are many different reasons you might undergo cancer surgery. So first is cancer prevention. So if you are very high risk of developing cancer in, in certain tissues or organs, your doctor may recommend removing these tissues or organs prophylactically, even before cancer develops. Um, so just to, to go back to my example, my, my surgeon was so worried about my family history and, and, and my risk factors 
had my genetic panel come back positive for BRCA, he was talking about doing uh, preventative uh, mastectomies, uh, potentially hysterectomies. And, and this was, you know, obviously a major scare for me. I knew I wanted to start a family. So anyway, but, but d depending on your case, this might be something that your physician recommends. Right. Also, of course, diagnosis. So your doctor may use a form of cancer surgery to remove all or part of a tumor and then study that tumor to determine whether the growth is malignant or benign. Mm -hmm. We also um, use surgery for staging. So surgery helps doctors um, figure out how advanced your cancer is, called it stage. And it also allows the, the, the doctor to evaluate the size of your tumor and determine whether it's traveled elsewhere, like to your lymph nodes. And additional tests may be necessary to, to pinpoint your cancer's stage. So Surgery, of course, is also used as a primary treatment. So for many tumors, cancer surgery is the best chance um, for a cure, especially surgery is especially successful if cancer is localized and hasn't spread. There's also something called debulking. So when it's not possible to remove the entire cancerous tumor, let's say if uh, if doing so may severely harm an organ, you may um, your doctor may remove as much of the tumor as possible. This is called debulking, and it also helps to make other treatments such as chemotherapy or radiation more effective. And then finally, another reason you might have surgery is to relieve symptoms or side effects. So sometimes surgery is used to improve quality of life rather than to treat cancer itself. So let's say a tumor is pressing on a nerve or a bone and causing pain, um, or there's a tumor blocking your intestine. For this reason, your, your, your surgeon might go in and, and do a surgery to relieve those, those symptoms and uncomfortable side effects. Yeah, and there's a variety of different techniques and specific surgical processes that are involved. And of course, this is highly dependent on the type of, of tumor, the stage of the tumor and, and things like that. So I think we'll maybe leave that for a future episode. Okay, so the next type of intervention is radiation therapy. And so this type of therapy um, uses beams of intense energy to kill cancer cells. So it most often uses x-rays, uh, but protons or other types of energy can also be used. So when we hear the term radiation therapy, that most often refers to external beam radiation therapy, but there can also be internal therapies. So just to give uh, one example, so the uh, radiation therapy is very commonly used to treat prostate cancer. And when it's used early on um, in early stages, success rates are around 90% or higher. So radiation treatments for prostate cancer are divided into two main types. You have brachytherapy, which is internal radiation and external beam radiation. And then your internal radiation can be further subdivided into low dose and high dose. And for the low dose, basically seeds containing radiation are placed within the prostate while the patient's under anesthesia. And then the seeds stay in the body and give off their radiation dose over a period of several months, actually. For high-dose brachytherapy, tubes or catheters are placed into the prostate, of course, again, the patient's under anesthesia, and a high dose of radiation is delivered over a few minutes, um, usually in several uh, sessions, and then the radiation source is removed. 
So it's really not a question of which therapy is better, but which therapy is the most tailored and pinpointed radiation for a patient-specific disease. Andrea, do you want to talk a little bit about chemotherapy? Yeah, and I think before we jump in, you know, we're talking kind of broadly about radiation and chemotherapy, and these are what we call broad class treatments. And so they're very effective at killing cancer cells, but they also affect our healthy cells. Um, They just often affect cancer cells faster because of the higher rate of proliferation of these cells. But this is often why radiation and chemotherapies have a lot of side effects associated with them, including things like hair loss and and nausea and things like that. So chemotherapy is a very broad catch-all that refers to drug treatments that use chemicals to kill fast-growing cells like cancer. Um, And these are often used for cancer, but they can also be used for other sorts of disorders, and including things like overactive immune system disorders and things like that. Now, again, because... These are broad classes of chemicals. They are also potentially going to have some effects on our healthy cells. And that's why many of these chemotherapies often have side effects. But overall, the chemotherapy drugs are going to depend on what type of cancer you have, the stage of cancer, if you've had previous cancer treatment. So have you had a surgery to debulk a tumor and now you're doing chemotherapy? Or are you doing chemotherapy first to reduce the size of a tumor before surgery? Um, and ultimately, what what your goal is, right? Are we looking for curative? Are we looking for palliative treatment? Um, and typically, that's going to help guide your treatment along with your oncologist. So there's a variety of different types of chemotherapy. These are most often given as intravenous infusions. Um, and so that's going to be in a vein, and it's going to be as a liquid. But there's also pills, there's also shots, there's also some ointments or creams involved, and these can ultimately be administered um, in outpatient settings or even at home, depending on what type of chemotherapy you're going to have. There are a few classes of chemotherapies, um, so I'll talk very briefly about these, but chemo ultimately attempts to interfere with the cell growth and the proliferation, and this is very effective for cancer because these cells are growing much more rapidly than other cells in our bodies. Um, So there's broad classes. So the first broad class is a class called alkylating agents. And these are chemotherapies that cause damage to DNA. And once they cause enough damage to DNA, that ultimately leads to the cell's inability to reproduce. The next one would be anti-metabolites. So these are what we call nitrogenous-based analogs. So what they do is they mimic the molecules, the building blocks of DNA in our bodies. And because they're non-functional, they prevent the replication of the DNA as a result. Um, There's also classes called anti-tumor antibiotics. So these aren't antibiotics in the traditional sense, meaning that they're bacterial killing chemicals. But what these do is they bind to the DNA in cancerous cells. And again, they interfere with the cancer cell's ability to reproduce. And then the last broad class would be our plant alkaloids. And these two of them in this class are called topoisomerase inhibitors and mitotic inhibitors. And again, these all target enzymes and processes that are involved in the cell's ability to reproduce. Um, So a few 
key examples, and again, these are broad classes. These are all used for different types of cancers and things like that. A few in the class of alkylating agents are cisplatin, streptozosin, and carmustine. Um, a few in the anti-metabolite class are capacitabine, hydroxyurea, and methotrexate. Um, a few in the anti-tumor antibiotic class are doxorubicin, bleomycin, and mitomycin C. And then a couple in the plant alkaloid classes are atoposide and vincristine. Now, again, as I mentioned, because these are broad spectrum and they're ultimately affecting cell cycle, ability of the cells to reproduce, they're also going to inevitably affect healthy cells in our body. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think that a lot of the research focus is on um, new avenues of cancer treatment, right? Um, I know that there's a lot of focus on immunotherapies, which are treatments that modulate the immune system to better target cancer. Um, Andrea, I, I, I don't know that we're going to get into the details, but do you want to just talk about the broad classes of immunotherapies briefly? Yeah, and we'll definitely do an episode on immunotherapies in, in the future because this really is kind of where a lot of the treatments for cancer are going and it's actually where a lot of my, my personal work these days are is headed. But ultimately, all of these different types of treatments, as I mentioned, you know, cancers are able to evade the immune system. So if we're able to adjust or, or change the immune response, we can better target these cancers that are trying to hide out. Um, so there's kind of five main classes. We have adoptive cell therapy. So this is basically where we take immune cells from a patient and we change them or engineer them to better recognize cancer. And then we reinfuse them into the body. So an example of that would be CAR-T therapy. You might have heard about that. Um, cancer vaccines. So there's both preventative and treatment-oriented vaccines. So again, these are going to be things that trigger an immune response against a specific cancer type based on certain molecules that the cancer cells express. Um, we have the immunomodulators. So these are broad things that affect the immune cell signaling. So these would be things that affect cytokines, which are chemicals secreted by immune cells. These are things that would be involved in the checkpoint regulation. So CTLA-4, like I mentioned before, and PDL one are involved. These are checkpoint inhibitors. Oncolytic virus therapy. So there are certain viruses that not cause cancer, but they actually kill cancer cells. So we can actually use a virus that would be targeted against a cancer to kill cancer cells. And then the last class is a very broad class called antibody therapies. And these are antibodies that we can administer to a patient that would specifically target a cancer. So these would be monoclonal antibodies, or they would be antibodies that basically bridge immune cells with a cancer cell. So these are often called bispecific antibodies. And then there's other types of antibody therapies. But ultimately, the broad goal of all of these is that they affect or integrate the immune response to better target cancers. How interesting. I really, I can't wait for the episode. Um, I'd love to hear more about your own research. Um, and we're really just scratching the surface here, right? There's so much to tackle. Just very briefly, so again, driving home the point that um, a lot of these treatments and therapies are really broad spectrum. And so a lot of the research focus now is on creating targeted therapies that are more specific and geared to attack 
specific cells that are associated with cancer, as opposed to the more standard chemotherapies and other treatments that act on all rapidly dividing normal and, and cancerous cells. And yep. part of that benefit is not only a more effective treatment and, and higher, you know, regression rate, but also reducing the side effects that are associated with these more traditional treatments. Mm-hmm. So just very briefly, there's also hormone therapy, which we know is useful for, for reproductive cancers. So drugs in this category work on different actions of hormones that make some cancers grow. Um, there's also uh, stem cell and bone marrow transplants. Did you want to talk briefly about that, Andrea? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, stem cell and bone marrow transplants are most useful if you have a circulating cancer like a lymphoma or a leukemia, um, or if you've had radiation therapy because often radiation therapy will wipe out your own stem cells. So your bone marrow contain all of your precursors to your immune system. And so if you have radiation therapy, um, you can actually wipe out your, your own immune system. And so you often need to transplant that back to replace it. Um, so this is beneficial for certain types of cancer and also to recover your immune system after some of these primary cancer treatments. So again, we're just scratching the surface here. Um, we'll do a deeper dive into some of these different categories of treatments in the future. I think one of the main take homes again is um, the, how diverse, you know, even the term cancer is um, and how treating it is very difficult. Um, and there are so many different factors to consider, of course, and that the future of, of research seems to be focused on more targeted therapies that are not as uh, broad spectrum as some of the more traditional therapies that we've used. Um, any yeah. other? Yeah, sorry. I think, I think this just underscores, you know, I, I've heard obviously being in the field that, you know, we're hiding the cure for cancer mm -hmm. and, you know, we're, we're just, we're not, we're not releasing it so we can profit off of cancer treatments. And and, and I hope that the at least these two kind of introductory episodes have given you all some some reference that you know it's there there isn't one cure for cancer to begin with. Cancer is so complex and so genetically unique, and it and it encompasses so many diseases that there's not a one size fits all. There are often multiple things that need to be incorporated in order to have an effective cancer treatment. And even those are not always effective. Part of it has to be on diagnosis and surveillance. And that includes preventative medicine and, you know, getting checkups and getting blood work and, you know, looking out for some of those symptoms that we discussed in the first episode. But, you know, there isn't a quick fix. And so the goal of cancer research is to, of course, better understand certain types of cancers and how they progress, but also to be able to develop more effective treatments for a broad array of cancers. And, you know, we're making really, really great strides to that. And we will discuss that in the future. Beautifully said as always, Andrea, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please also make sure to check out our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. You can check out all of our show notes, including all of the links and references that we use for our discussions on each episode. You can also leave us a question for our Heard from the Herd segment. And you can pick yourself up some Unbiased Science merch. 
Next week, we are actually going to switch gears and we're going to focus a little bit on mental health, mental health awareness and mental illness as May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. 